Hey there, this is Jay from Filmstrip dropping in to let you know you're about to hear a classic episode from our archives. Some of these shows were produced before we called the show Filmstrip Podcast, before we used popcorn ratings, uh, had the standard intro song from Frozen Lake 121, or really even knew what we were doing recording and editing the show. However, there's a lot of fun in them, and we hope you enjoy. Just wanted to let you know in case you noticed the differences. Now, on to the show. Welcome to Continuous Play's review of Caddyshack, featuring Anna McCoy. That's all I need. And Jay Newcastle. You know, I've often thought of becoming a golf club. This podcast is spoiler-filled, so don't listen unless you want to know all about the plot, the characters, and the themes. At the end, we will give our recommendation for your viewing. Caddyshack is a copyright of Warner Brothers, and descriptions of the plot, characters, or music in the film is strictly for entertainment purposes only, and no infringement is intended. That's right! It's time to talk Caddyshack here on Continuous Play Podcast. I'm Jay. And I'm Anna. And we're glad you joined us again. Anna, we're, we're sticking with the comedies. We just finished up Ghostbusters 1 and 2. Now it's time for Caddyshack. And this was a film released in 1980, directed by Harold Ramis, written by Douglas Kinney, Harold Ramis, and Brian Doyle Murray, starring Chevy Chase, Rodney Dangerfield, Ted Knight, Michael O'Keefe, and Brian Doyle's brother, Bill Murray. Uh, big film for that year. Uh, came out, at, like I said, 1980. May, on a budget of $6 million, made almost $40 million in its first run and has had an entire life on home video and cable. Has been listed in the top 25 of comedies, of American comedies ever made and one of the best sports comedies ever made. Yes, and I actually was watching this while my husband was watching the Masters. This well, that's amazing. Yeah, <laughs> I had this on my computer and I was watching it while he was watching the Masters and saying something about Tiger versus Phil and stuff and I, I was like, yeah, Bill Murray and the Gopher, that's funny. But, um, yeah, I was watching this, and it was more interesting to me than the Masters, but that's another story. But, um, yeah, I just, I love this movie, and it even, speaking of the Masters of Tiger Woods, it even encouraged me to go to YouTube and watch the Tiger Woods Caddyshack commercial on <laughs> YouTube, which I, I don't know why now I find it even funnier, but it was, I just, I really like this movie. It's a very classic type movie and um yeah i think i think it's really good movie let's let's talk about how we were first uh introduced to this i'll, I'll tell my story here real quick anna i didn't see the this is an r-rated movie we got to say that from the start i didn't see the r-rated version of this until i guess i might have been a senior in high school or even in college but i saw this thing on cable tv a lot growing up and you can all you know the old days of cable dubs. It's it's great because they would like replace words with like the most ridiculous sounding overdub ever. You know it didn't even sound like the actor's voice. So you kind of knew what was supposed to be there. But I had no idea like a lot of the uh, love scenes were what they were in this film until much later. But I I've been exposed to this movie early on. I think I may have been twelve the first time I saw it on television. How old were you when you got exposed to Caddyshack? I was probably in college. I might have been older. I believe I was in college. 
I know Animal House was, but this might have been something. For some reason, when I first started college, the cable company couldn't come and hook up my cable for two weeks after I moved into my apartment. And being the TV lover that I am, that really freaked me out. So I went and rented a bunch of movies, and I think this was in it because I know I had I saw it probably in college, and I saw the R-rated version of it. So I didn't see any of the toned down tel- network television versions. First, I saw this one first, and I saw it when I was older. Well, this will be interesting then, because that—that's been my exposure to it. Was was the the. Uh, rated version, if you will, mm-hmm. up up until uh, up until I saw the the unrated many years later. So th- this will be an interesting discussion. Before we get any further into this and sort of our impressions of it and stuff, Anna, why don't we start with a plot overview, if you if you will, please? Okay. Well, of course, Caddyshack takes place at the Bushwood Country Club, and it was actually filmed in Florida, but supposedly the Bushwood Country Club was supposed to be in Nebraska, and it follows a bunch of people, but mostly Danny Noonan. I believe how you yeah. pronounce his name, who is, he's played by Michael O'Keefe, and he is this caddy at Bushwood Country Club. He comes from, and you see in the very first scene, well, actually, the very first scene is the opening credits and the gopher, but the very next scene, with the credits continuing, is his humongous Irish Catholic <laughs> family with, like, ten kids. And you see his dad on him, that what about that scholarship? What about that scholarship? Did you get that scholarship? You need to put your tips in the college fund and stuff. And it's following him and his quest to go to college in hopes of getting that caddy scholarship. And along the way are some interesting characters, like the next scene he's caddying for Ty Webb, who is played by Chevy Chase, who is, I've said before in the Ghostbusters podcast, has this very zen attitude toward golfing. He's very in the moment, doesn't keep score type of person. And you see him talking to um, Danny about college and stuff. And Danny's like, I want to go to college or I'll work in the lumber yard all my life. And Chevy Chase says, well, I think I own two lumber yards. And Danny says, well, you don't spend a whole lot of time there. And he goes, yeah, that's right. So they go on this kind of philosophical thing while he's caddying for them. And um, then and then it goes, then you run into Ted Knight, who is the old school, snobbish, what you would expect a country club person to be. What you, the stereotypical country club person, old money, has these grandkids and nieces and nephews who really don't do anything. They're just basically a poster for money doesn't buy class. So, and and then you've got Al Cervix, played by Rodney Dangerfield, who who is just brassy, bold, has a loud car that, that the horn plays, we're in the money, and has a golf bag with a bar in it and a radio and turns the radio on the golf course. And all... And throughout the movie, all these characters all intertwine and stuff. And you have Lacey Underall, played by Cindy Morgan, who just she just plays this really loose kind of girl. And and they and of course you've got Bill Murray, who plays the groundskeeper Carl, who is chasing after the gopher by putting explosives and water in the hole, and basically spends the whole movie um, chasing the gopher and making grass that you can play golf on and smoke weed with. So anyway, 
we've got Danny trying to get the scholarship, and he starts sucking up to um, Judge, Judge Smales. He starts sucking up to Judge Smales, and and to, because the kid who actually won the scholarship wound up having a nervous breakdown, so the scholarship is back up for grabs. And he starts um, sucking up to Judge Smales. Gets kind of caught in this whole thing with he has this girlfriend who's a waitress at the club, but then he starts making advances to Judge Smell's niece, Lacey, Lacey Underall, and they kind of get in this little triangle and goes back to the un- the unrated version where you get in some nudity and some weird situations and all this to get to the um, and all this goes. We go through, it really has no real good plot. It's ba- the plot, and as I was thinking about how I was going to do this, the plot in a nutshell is we follow Danny trying to get the scholarship, and he wins the caddy tournament, and he sucks up to the judge, who then suggests he wins the caddy tournament. And then at the end, um, Al and Ty play Judge Smales and his friend, the doctor, who seems to never be at Dr. <laughs> Beeper, who never seems to be at the hospital, yeah. is like, oh, push that open heart surgery. Just push that back. They can wait a couple hours. Stop letting us around. They get, they get in this betting match at the very end of the movie for Al wants to buy the golf course and make condos, and Ty just really can't stand Judge Smells, and Judge Smells really can't stand Ty. So they get in this match that winds up, they wind up betting about $80,000 each, and that's how the movie ends. Danny gets his scholarship, he gets enlightened. He goes, and you don't know really if he goes to college or not at the end of this movie. You don't really know what he's doing. So it's, the plot's hard. It it is, and I I slept that off on you because I wanted to see how you would explain it. I had no idea how to do it. We should say this from the outset. Harold Ramis, this was his first film that he directed. He had written a couple of others and had been in stuff. The first thing he directed, and he has said in multiple interviews since that, this was a Marx Brothers style comedy. It was a Three Stooges kind of show. It's very slapstick and moment to moment. And in the original script, Judge Smales and uh, Dr. Beeper were, were supposed to have much bigger roles. But as Chevy Chase and Rodney Dangerfield came on set and they began to improv their way through scenes, it was very clear that they were much more interesting Characters and so you know, smells and and uh, beeper kind of got pushed to the to the side, which I've been told Ted Knight was not real thrilled about, and it was more focus on Chevy Chase and Dangerfield and their sort of their antics, and then Bill Murray's pieces were just sort of put in. He was only on the set for maybe five or six days, and nothing of what he says was written down. That was all Murray. We've talked about his improv skills. We don't need to go there again. But there's really no plot thread. You're right. If you want to follow a plot thread in this, there's two. There's the gopher and Carl's war against the gopher, and then there's Danny, and this character of Danny who is and he's desperate to – have a you know get a scholarship and to try to get out of this rut where he feels like he is in life, but he's really sort of a he's a bit of a layabout in himself. You described his huge Catholic family. That's the stereotypical what the '70s version of the Catholic family was. You know, mom and dad and 20 kids who were all within a year of each other. And they all had one bathroom. 
Yeah, in this little White House, and you know, Danny's running around, and he's the oldest, uh, and and so there's a lot on him, the oldest son, all that stuff, and he feels all that pressure. But at the same time, he's still a kid, and he likes to smoke grass with his buddies. And he's got this rival named uh, Denunzio, uh, who's he's a real – he's the stereotypical Italian-American kid. He's supposed to be like Benny Barbarino or something like that. You know, he's he's channeling Travolta and all, all those guys at the time. And a little bit of Stallone from Rocky, I think. But he's in there, and he's kind of the rival caddy. And then you've got all these other kids that are sort of there. But it, there, there's, you're right, there's no real plot to this. It's just a lot of good gags and a lot of scenes strung together that somehow or another make a movie. Now, I'll say now, I think it works effectively in the fact that there's not a, you don't have to really follow up with a plot. You're pretty much told everything you need to know inside of five minutes in this thing of who everybody is. Yeah, you do. It's kind, it's kind of like Ghostbusters in that sense, but maybe that's Harold, uh, Harold Ramis' calling card in his yeah. writing, is that he doesn't put a lot of backstory in the characters. Like, you you get to the point, and then you move on with the comedy. Well, this is the real underlying thing here, too, the old money versus new money, because cause Roddy Dangerfield, Al, Al Zervik, is supposed to be um, – a nouveau riche, and he's he's real flamboyant and out there. And then you've got you know the, the the bishop, the Catholic bishop, who's hanging out at the golf course drinking whiskey. I think that's hilarious. You got him there, and then the doctor that's never at the hospital, and the judge who's never in court, always on the golf course, and they represent the old school. And then Al and Ty are really more of the new school, though it's hard to say where Chevy Chase falls in this, because you get the feeling that he comes from money, he's made money, but he just doesn't care. He, yeah, I was going to say, he's kind of in the middle, but I was going to ask you a question. Do you like golf? Well, see, I do, and I, I've only recently started playing the game maybe four or five years ago, my uh, my... Uh, wife's grandfather's a big golfer. Her father is too. Grandfather's a real big golfer, and he really got me into it along with some of her uncles up in Chattanooga, Tennessee, as I live in the South. And, and I, she bought me a set of clubs, and I've gone out and played, and I like to just go and play and have fun. I, I mean, you know, I, I play here and there. I, I maybe play four or five times a year at the most, uh, and less this year. I haven't played this year yet, oddly enough. But, I like it. I like to watch it on television when it's a major, but I'm not like a, a scrutinizer of the sport or anything. But I do like it. I do enjoy it. Well, I live with a scrutinizer of the sport. <laughs> yeah. And I have to say that I have been out on the golf course and not played myself because I, I personally think it's just a stupid thing. <laughs> but, but I live with a scrutinizer of the sport who was – and I, what I found so fascinating is that I, I think this movie's hilarious. And I was like, you need to – I told my husband, I was like, you need to watch it. He was a caddy in Chattanooga, yeah. Tennessee. He got a caddy scholarship to go to college and stuff. And I was like, you are going to find this hilarious. Like, I don't understand why you find this so funny. But I think why I find it so funny is that I I have been reprimanded – because there's so many rules in golf if you've ever played or played with someone who or been with someone who scrutinizes the game there are so many intricate tedious little rules like you can't you can't talk until some the ball's in the air you've got to be absolutely quiet you can't you can put your cart on the fairway but you can't put it on the green and you've got it's just so many tedious little rules and I think that's why I find this movie so funny is because it makes fun of every one of them I mean I've been shushed on the golf course I've been reading a magazine and my pages flipping is too loud or something. And you've got to be totally silent and you 
can go from certainties, and if you go from certainties, means more than this and stuff like that. So I just, I just, and like I said, I find it a stupid sport. I find these rules absolutely stupid. So I, I, this movie, just making fun of it, just really, really appeals to me. It is, way. and it's it's not a movie that is very respectful to the game. By any means. If, no. if you want that and you're watching, you know, this gets called a sports comedy. I don't really think that's fair. The sport here is just the it's just the stage for these people. There's no real anything about golf, and if you watch some of them, you know, swinging the ball, you can tell which guys really play golf, and then Roddy Dangerfield, which guys don't, because uh, he doesn't. Clearly, he just looks like he doesn't know what he's doing out there. So every time he hits the ball, it's this far off shot, and clearly a, a some PA they drug off the side to to hit for him. Uh, but you know, you you watch uh, Ted Knight play, and he looks like he knows what he's doing. You know. And, it's not a it's not a, a movie for the the golf purist. If you want that, I, I recommend The Legend of Bagger Vance. I also recommend Two Nodos if you watch that movie. But Caddyshack is it's all about this setting where we can have this coming of age story for this Danny kid. That's that's really the central theme of this. And I got to say this: Michael O'Keefe is a guy who's been around a while. If you ever watch the show Roseanne, he was on that for a little while. Yeah. Didn't he play one of Jackie's? He did play one of Jackie's men, and and uh, he uh, he's been in several movies. He's usually a side part. I think the last one of the last things I saw him in was a movie with uh, I was in a thriller called uh, uh, The Glass House. He was in it for like ten minutes, but he he was the dad in the movie. But he he's had a pretty decent career, but he was young at this point. I like him. You kind of like Danny from the get-go because he gets up and his sisters are ragging on him. He just wants a little bit of privacy in the morning so he can get out to work. His dad's ragging on him about the college fund. Did you get the scholarship? And all he wants to do is get on his bicycle and just go to the golf course. It, to me, his job is his release. And it makes for a really interesting protagonist. If we're going to follow one person through the film, it's a good guy to follow. Yeah, and I don't think he really wants the scholarship. He wants it because his dad wants it. I don't think he really wants it. I think he he strikes me at the very beginning as someone who would be happy being a caddy all his life or would be happy at the lumber yard or something. You, I, I just don't think he wants the scholarship, but it's, he feels that that is what he needs to do. And that's kind of his journey through the movie. It, it is. And let's start talking our way through the film. You, you went through it in a bit of the plot summary. He gets there, and we're introduced to the caddies, and we get the story about the the the, uh, the caddy scholarship, and he meets up with Ty Webb, who's played by Chevy Chase. And this is, i got to say, this is one of Chevy Chase's best roles. And he's been in a few good movies in his life, a handful. He's been in some bad ones, too. But he was very effective in this. He was coming off of a series of films where it looked like he was always turning into some animal and Goldie Hawn was with him. I think that was sort of the thread of his 70s films. But he's very good in this because he doesn't have to carry it. And I've always felt like if Chevy Chase doesn't have to carry a movie, he's better because he's a good side part to it. And you don't know much about this guy except that he he seems to be an enigma to everyone there. 
the judge asks about, you know, how good is Ty Webb, and he, you know, he throws a score out there, and Danny says, oh, no, it's more like this, and it's like a pro golfer score. Like, he, he's so good, but he doesn't keep score because he doesn't care. And it gives you this real, he's this real neat mentor for Danny. And we got to think when this came out, this was in the, the you know, 1979 when they shot this. This was in 1980. We're in the post-Yoda Star Wars world here. Actually, we're in the pre-Yoda Star Wars world here. So strong male mentors in films, we don't know a lot about those relationships with young boys. And, and, I, and you know, we're talking about Empire Strikes Back that comes out a year later. This is the complete antithesis of that. You've got a mentor who is, is a bad example and will tell Danny, look, I don't know anything and, and neither do you. And, and don't worry about it and then Danny looking for that kind of guidance and I may be reading a bit much into this Hannah but I, I kind of looked at this as the the tail end of the baby boomers with the beginning of the the Gen Xers and the tail end of the baby boomers going look kid I have no idea what I'm doing either just do your thing and Danny not really knowing how to accept that at the first of the film I, I never thought of it that way I can say <laughs> that but but yeah I, now that you say it it makes perfect sense and I would agree with you but also doesn't it kind of come like you say it's coming out of the 70s and we're coming we're in between that kind of laid back psychedelic age of Aquarius culture into the going into the Reagan era at this Mm -hmm. point so at that at that point it's you know it's maybe it came out at the perfect time this is this is going, I think it's coming out of, cause I would think the 70s were a way more zen type decade than the 80s. Yeah, this is, this is before the cocaine 80s for sure. Uh, though, though everybody yeah. in this film is probably on it at, at one time or another. Um, you mentioned her yeah. in the, the plot summary. I want to talk about Danny's girlfriend versus Lacey, the judge's, uh, promiscuous niece. You couldn't have cast Two different people to to catch the eye of this young guy. Maggie is this kind of she's sweet and loyal, sort of Irish, homely, nice girl, but not not you know beauty queen. And Lacey is this stunning, gorgeous blonde, but you can tell she's trashy, you know, because she just exudes trashiness. And like you said, money doesn't equal class. And I thought that was a real interesting contrast for him to. To sort of have for love interest. Yeah. It, yes, it is. And, you know, watching this, I really didn't get what was the point of that, of having the two and have him have a relationship with the two. Is this a, is the Lacey under all what he could have if he gets a scholarship and, um, the waitress girl, which I can't remember her name Maggie. right now. Maggie, mm-hmm. thank you. I remembered her last name was yeah. Ohulahan. But um, Maggie is the girl he would get if he works at the lumber yard. So maybe it's kind of a paradox. Like, this is what's having him decide. Like, do I go to college and get the lacy under all type girl? Or do I stay here and work at the lumber yard and be a caddy all my life? And I end up with a Maggie. Maybe that parallels with that whole thing. It could thing. be. I think, it, I think it, it actually goes along his whole arc, and I'm going to come back to that at the end, and we'll, we'll get there. But we meet all these characters, and we haven't even talked about Bill Murray much yet. He's the assistant groundskeeper. His name's Carl. And 
uh, his Irish boss. Everybody in this film, there's a big Irish Catholic tone in this film. It, it, his his Irish boss says, "Look, we we've got complaints about gophers digging tunnels." Go kill all the golfers, and he says, "Well, if I kill all the golfers, won't they throw me up? You know, throw me away, lock away the key or whatever?" And he says, "No, the the, the gophers, you know, go after the gophers." So he tries to come up with all these plans to go for the gophers, and it's everything from running a fire hose down the down the holes in the greens, and he basically waters the whole uh, golf course that way, and or he, he tries to chase the thing down, he tries to shoot it with a sniper rifle, but we get a lot of Murray sort of thrown in between scenes to basically just be this offbeat comet relief and he's so goofy but of we well, forgot about the dolly oh god yeah i didn't even got got to that yet it, it, he's he's this enigma on film but he's so weird but of all the things out of this movie probably the most quoted stuff is bill murray's and you said it a second ago one of the caddies he's talking to one of the caddies and he's talking about how he he, he saved the he played around a golf with the dalai lama and he beat him and the dalai lama told him he would have perfect release when he died or some you know all, again that zen philosophy it's it's all over this film and the caddy kid's just looking at him going yeah right well, it's because the caddy kid's looking at him like that because he's poking him with a pitchfork <laughs> while he's telling this story. He keeps poking him, and he's like, I'm in the Himalayas, and the Dalai Lama himself. And I thought, and like I said, I got Al's name wrong. I got Rodney Dangerfield's character wrong, so maybe my hearing's off. But I thought he caddied for the Dalai Lama, and the Dalai Lama didn't tip him, but said that it, uh, instead of tipping you, you're going to get enlightened. You, you, know what, you know what? You're right. He didn't play golf because he did caddy for him. You're, you're right. I've, I've just sort of retconned that in my own way. But yeah, he caddied for him, and then he, he got stiffed for the tip. Yeah, <laughs> he got, his last line to that is like, "Well, I got that killer." Yeah, for me. and it's that's all in in the midst of these scenes. Probably one of his best scenes is when he's. He's got this little sling blade hedge trimmer, you know, weed trimmer thing, and he's he's just chopping at these flowers with a golf swing. And Bill Murray's a, a pretty avid golfer, so he looks like he knows what he's doing too. And, and he's making up this whole thing about how he's on, you know, he's on the the final tee at Augusta, and he talks himself through. What, what you would see on television for golf coverage. And he's, you know, Cinderella kid out of nowhere going for the Masters Championship. And he just, you know, every shot until he sinks the birdie and he wins and it's, the crowd goes wild. And it's it's one of the funniest things. And one of the most amazing things about that is they set the camera up, told Bill, go knock those flowers down and be funny. And five minutes later, that's what they had. He did it just like that. Uh, that's still not my favorite scene. My favorite scene is when you first see him and he's using the ball cleaner and he's che- checking out the older <laughs> ladies and it's like getting them all hot and bothered. I think that scene, that scene and the one with the groundskeeper about killing all the yeah. offers, those are my two, two of my favorite scenes ever with Bill Murray. They're just, they are so funny. I, I, I was watching this and I saw with the he's he's looking at the old ladies and you see the hand movement and stuff and I I'm like that is too funny I just burst out laughing it was so funny those are my two favorite scenes I think. Oh, so we're moving through this and Murray scenes kind of come and go and there's there's a ton of them they're, they're hilarious but as we're moving through the plot here. Um, we see Danny trying to suck up to the judge, and the judge, in a fit of rage, after he, he meets Rodney Dangerfield's character, Al, 
and and the, you know Al's just harassing him on the golf course, and and he gets so frustrated with him that he just throws his golf club, and he winds up hitting this lady in the head. Well, Danny takes the fall for it, saying, "Yeah, I didn't put enough stick them on your on your on your grips there, Judge. That's my fault." And that wins him some of the respect of the judge. Now the judge gives him like twenty five cents, you know, and it's like a big deal. And Danny's like, "Whatever," but he's starting to get in with him, and he gets invited to this Fourth of July party. And Danny takes his girlfriend with him, but that's when he first sees Lacey. And, and you know, the girlfriend, Maggie's going, ah, you don't want to mess with her. She's the biggest whore on Fifth Avenue. And that does nothing but just seem to excite him more because there's nothing worse than telling a 17-year-old that, yes, yeah, she's kind of loose. You know, that's not a turnoff to most 17-year-old dudes. I hate to say that. Um, so, especially in this time, we're in the 70, the end of the 70s free love era here, right? You know, so he's, uh, he, he's enamored with her. And, the next thing is, well, Ty comes in at that point and also catches the eye of Lacey. Now, I, I always thought that was a little odd because he's played to be so much older than Danny, and she's supposed to be like maybe a couple of three years older than Danny. Like if he's 17, she's supposed to be like 20 or 21 maybe, and Ty's supposed to be in his late 30s. I don't know how old Chevy was when he did this, but that, that always seemed a little off to me, unless they just wanted to play up the fact that she was a big hoe. Yeah. That's what I'm thinking. That's what I was going to say. Any girl that was supposed to be as trashy as she was is not going to blink twice at a 37, 38-year-old guy. Mm -hmm. I mean, I mean, just from, yeah, she's not going to blink twice. And I think it, you're right. It was to play up the trashy, loose kindness of her. But also on that note that she, um, Cindy Morgan, had a hard, they had a hard time convincing her to do the new really? things. Yes, they had a very hard time convincing her she would stay in her trailer. And I've heard this from more than one source. I heard it on the behind the scenes on the DVD, and I also heard it on um, a biography I watched about Caddyshack, is that she had a really hard time doing the nude scene, and especially the nude scene in the pool with Chevy Chase. When you really, if you watch it, you really don't see anything of her. It's just really her back. So I don't understand why she would have a hard time doing it. But she had a hard time. They had to get producers in. And I think, from what I understand, they don't come out and say it. And I might be misinterpreting this, but I think they liquored her up for her to do <laughs> I, it. I, I have been told that the scene, that it's kind of the next scene anyway, that, that uh, when her and Ty are drinking at his place or whatever, and they're just kind of <laughs> flirting and, you know, all the foreplay. I have been told or have read on somewhere more than once that that was real tequila, that they were doing real tequila shots during that whole scene. And by the by the time they got done shooting that, because something like that last five minutes on screen, it takes 12 hours to shoot, that they had gone through like, you know, six or seven bottles of it there, that they were all hammered out of their mind, and you can almost see it on Chevy Chase's face, because he just looked so drunk the whole movie, but especially there, so I wouldn't doubt that they did that to try to get her, uh, to try to get her uh, interested in doing the, the nude scenes that are that are coming up a little bit later. But, and also on that, the part where he um, puts lotion down mm -hmm. her back, you know, he spills it all over yeah. her. And you can, and when I watched, I knew this when I watched it this last time. You, she's, she's being serious when she's like, "You're crazy. What are you doing?" She's really breaking character yeah. and being crazy because he's just like, "Oh, I'll put some more on you." Oh, there we go. That's good. You know, she, she was, oh my god, you're crazy. And they said that she was really breaking character, but he was really into it. So maybe I, he was. I'm, I'm sure Chevy was into that. Uh, you know. 
uh, at, at that moment in time. We, we go through the, the next piece now. There's the Caddy Day Golf Tournament, and Danny wins the tournament, so that's going to kind of seal his deal, you think, for the for the Caddy Scholarship. But we, we've had now the scene where, where Lacey and, and Ty have been hammered at each other's house. Well, Lacey and Danny wind up at the Yacht Club together because I think Danny's, like, being a waiter there for the day. He got invited to the, the christening of... No, he got invited by um, Joe Okay, for the, for the little wooden sloop, and... Yeah, he was the waiter at the Fourth of July party, and Maggie was. That's the waiter. it. See, I I get all the service entrances mixed up here, but but anyway, <laughs> um, Roddy Dangerfield crashes this party with this huge flamboyant yacht, and he drops an anchor right in the middle of of the the wooden the wooden boat and just sinks it. And the judge, of course, is freaking out. Well, while this is going on, Danny and Lacey have slipped out of the party and have gone back to the judge's house, and they are full-on getting it on in the bedroom. If she was uncomfortable in that pool with that far shot, she had to be real uncomfortable in this because, like I said, I, that's what I, yeah, I didn't see this, like I said, until much later when I, I think I was in college, and I was like, wow, that's uh, that's going on for quite some time. That, that, yeah, that must be really comfortable with 30 people standing around looking at you while that's getting shot. But anyway... Of course, Michael O'Keefe has this look on his face like the whole time, like he can't figure. You know, he's sitting there going, "I'm sorry, I'm just going to have to look stunned the whole time." Because in real life, he would be. Uh, and this is going on, and the judge and his wife come home, and of course, they catch them. So they chase uh, uh, Danny out of the house. Not before this hilarious scene where Danny is hiding in a bathroom. The judge's wife is in the shower, and she sees him, and she gives him this kind of winking look, and it's this real creepy, like if your grandma hit on you look, you know. <laughs> it's, yeah. And it's played for laughs. And it's hilarious. He gets out of the house. He expects that the judge is going to throw him out on his ear the next day, but nope. Smales offers him the scholarship if he'll keep quiet. He doesn't want his, his uh, niece's uh, reputation any worse than, than it could be at this point, which I thought was really neat. And it, I'll tell you this. you know, They make Judge Smales out to be this real stick in the mud, but he's actually a pretty good guy. If you really want to think about it, he's, he's a pretty nice guy. He's just trying to keep things the way he likes them. Yes, yes, completely. He, he just he's he's in his comfort zone, and he does not want to get out of his comfort zone. And Rodney Dangerfield's character just <laughs> threatens that comfort zone from every single angle you can imagine. And you know he likes his way of life, and he just wants to keep his. I see what you're saying. He just wants to keep his simple way of. Yo, life. up to this point too, we should say this. Rodney Dangerfield was a stand-up comic. He had been in one movie uh, called The Projectionist, which I have never seen. I know nothing about it other than the title of it. Looking at his filmography, and it was it was his debut, but. He had really just been a stand-up comic because all these guys knew him, you know, from SNL and SCTV and all this stuff. So when they brought him in, they didn't know what they had, and he turned into such dynamite on the screen that they upped the ante. They kept putting him in front of the judge, and it, it ultimately leads to this this showdown in the bar where it's almost like a scene out of an old western. You know, these two guys are finally going to draw down on each other, but of course, not being a western, being a, a golf comedy, they're going to start throwing money around because that's what these two guys have a lot of, right? And and, and mm-hmm. uh, Al says, I want to buy this club. You know, I think he's going to put up some condos, stuff like that. And they, they, they're they getting into it. And finally, Ty clears the room, and he gets him to agree to a, a doubles round, you know, Smells and Dr. Beeper against Webb and Zervik, 20000 apiece. You know, they throw in some money. So we get into the um, the uh, the golf match, and, of course, word spreads of, of – 
the golf match, and people are like following it around. There's all these side bets. There's some hilarious comedy in the side bets. Uh, yes, on that note, I really like the one with, um, we haven't talked about him much, but Judge Smells, either his nephew, nephew or yeah. his grandson, his nephew, and he just, um, he, he, he's the epitome of money doesn't buy a class. He throws it up in somebody's oh. car at one point, and he's sitting there on the golf course, and it's all, it's like the shoe shine guy, the ground, everybody's betting whether he's going to pick his nose then, and then they bet whether he's going to eat it. He sits there on the golf course picking his nose and then eating it and it's just they're all betting like 50 bucks as he eats it and they're like you're on and there you go to see it. It's just, that was one of the funniest things. It is and you're right it is his grandson Spalding. It's, it's not nephew it's his grandson Spalding and that that guy is hilarious in, in this film and I can't uh, for the life of me now I have to look up who he is. I uh, I'm seeing his name now. I have no idea who John Barman is. If you're listening to this, sir, well done. Uh, anyway, he's he's quite he's quite good in in this uh, this role. He's another just he's just one of those characters that he's just a slob, and you just wait for something bad to happen to him, and it's funny, you know. So, but oh, and he also at the party before he throws up, he's drinking everybody's <laughs> leftover drink. And one of them has a cigarette in it, and he drinks it, and then, like, gags. I believe it's I believe it's the doctor's car that he keeps in, too, because it's a convertible, it and it's, it's that whole... And that was a gag that got used again in a Tom Hanks movie called uh, uh, The Bachelor Party. Uh, there's a little, there's a sunroof gag that's used in that movie. If we ever get around to doing that one, we'll we'll maybe reference back to this. But anyway, there's all these side bets going on, and the bet gets doubled to 40000 finally, by the time they get to the ninth hole, because... Zervik and Webb are getting killed. They're playing the worst golf that they've ever played. They're getting slaughtered at this point. And so, of course, being brash, he doubles the bet thinking the judge and the doctor won't go for it, and then they do. So now they're all sunk in for forty grand, and, and you know they're all looking at, at him like, are you out of your mind? He gets hit by a, a ricochet ball, and he... He acts like he's, he's, he goes, oh, my arm's broken, I'm destroyed, you know, and the doctor's like, eh, it could be, you know, it's the most cursory exam ever. And, and he's trying to get out of it, and they're like, well, no, that's not going to be a draw, that's going to be a uh, a forfeit, because Lou, the, the club's manager, uh, who is played by uh, Brian Dole Murray, one of the writers, and Bill Murray's uh, brother, says, no, no, you got to get a stand-in. So Spalding could be a stand-in. Now, you know who the stand-in's going to be. It's going to be Danny. They bring Danny in to play this, and Smells, I think it's a great scene here, because we talked about what's, you know, why would you give Danny such opposing girlfriends, and what do those things mean? To me, what this was about was it was, in his mind, he thought, I either go to college and I get Lacey-type girl, or I work at a lumberyard and I get Maggie-type girl. And what he comes to realize is that I'm going to do what I want and be with the people who care about me, and that is to to make my own decisions. I'm going to be my own man. I'm not going to rely on anybody else. And the judge threatens him to take away his scholarship if he gets involved in something like this. And he says, you know, I guess I don't care about that scholarship after all. And he decides to play. And so he's going to play. And it's a, it's a big hero moment for Danny. Do you agree with me on that? Maybe that's the what the contrast was really leading up to? Yeah, like I said, I think that the two love interests, Maggie being hit what would happen if he doesn't go to college and Lacey being what would happen if he does. And the paradox is, it's like, okay, can I, can I have someone who really loves me, but you know, it's just a normal everyday person or do I get someone really hot? (laughs) who's really 
kind of a skank <laughs> and is going to cheat on me and all kinds of stuff. So that that's his dilemma throughout this whole thing. And the other thing I was going to say is that um, Al Zervik says, I do remember him saying at the very end, like, if you make this putt, I'll make it worth your while. <laughs> yeah. So I, they never go in what that means. Like, does he give them $20,000? What You know, what does he do? But when the judge smells says you're going to lose your scholarship, um, Al Zervik says, um, says, you know what, kid, I'll make this worth yeah, your you, while. You get and, the feeling that Al and Ty are going to take care of him no matter what happens. Uh, because... Right, and I think that comes back to the point you were saying where he he's like, you know what, forget all this. I'm going to do what I want, what makes me happy, and be with the people I want and who make me happy. And I think at that point when he makes that realization. And isn't that the, the plight of every coming-of-age story is that we, we these young men aspire to be in all of these these upper echelon places, and once they get a look at it, they realize that those people really aren't any better than everyone else, and then sometimes they're worse, and I should just be with people who do care about me, who do respect me for all his aloofness and oddities. You get a sense that Ty cares about Danny because he can tell that the kid's a lot like him. He doesn't really know what he wants to do with his life. He just knows he wants to be happy, and he knows what makes him happy, and he's afraid to jump out on that limb. You get a feeling that Al likes him because Al's a self-made man and he likes to see young entrepreneurial spirits. I mean, you kind of get that that's what you're seeing versus the more traditional route of law and medicine that you got with Schmelz and Dr. Pieper. I never really thought of that, but... I have, I have created a, I have created a sociology class around Caddyshack. I don't, I don't know uh, my professors would be so proud. We're down to the final hole, and Danny's playing so good that they've actually tied the score. And it comes down to the last putt. They double the bet. It's eighty grand now. Is it eighty grand a team or eighty grand a person? I've never clear on that. It's eighty grand a person. So we're talking about three hundred and twenty thousand dollars. Because when they say the forty thousand, when Ronnie, uh, when Ronnie Dangerfield has to go for the forty thousand, that's per person. And I've heard them saying it. You're both on the hook for forty thousand. So when they say eighty thousand, I assume that's per person. So that's as well. that's three hundred and twenty grand. We're talking about we're talking about nineteen eighty here, folks. I you know I can't do adjustments like that in my head, but I would imagine we'd be getting up in the million range pretty quick by today's standards. This is a lot of money these guys are throwing around on what really amounts to a couple of adult males pushing and shoving like kids on a playground. It's it's hilarious that this is what it's come to. Danny goes to make the putt. Now we've we we haven't uh, we need to interject something here that's happened earlier in the plot. We talked about how Carl Bill Murray's scenes are just sort of sandwiched in between stuff. The night before this game begins, Ty's out on the golf course trying to sharpen up his game, and he hits a ball through a Bill's little shack, and then he goes in, and they have this whole scene where they're smoking this huge joint and drinking and all this stuff, and, and he shows him the grass that he's growing that you can play on and smoke, which I thought was hilarious. But he also is seen making these figures out of C4. This is definitely a pre-9-11 world here. He's got his hands on some C4. This is pre-everything. Oh, my goodness. If you go, go back, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but if you go back, he's talking to uh, uh, Ty about not getting a, some kind of credit approval and they're giving them C4. Yeah, and that's what I'm saying. I'm like, you can't get a loan, but you can get C4. Okay, sure. Yeah, and I think you're led to believe at that moment 
that this guy probably was in Nam and has still got buddies from the era. He was fashioned from someone I think Harold Ramis knew that was an old, had old, you know, psychological yeah. thing. It's not funny, but uh, just thinking of Bill Murray is making me laugh. Um, who has psychological damage from being in the war? That's what he's, he, that is who he is fashioned. After. I agree. And we've seen him making these little figurine animals out of C4 that he's going to plant to, you know, get the gopher to sneak up and try to have relations with or, you know, talk to or whatever the gopher does, and he's going to blow it up. So these are planted all over the golf course during the match. We get to this last hole. Danny's got to make a putt. We see Bill setting up the big plunger. You know, he's going to blow the whole thing. The gopher's running around, and it's seen one of the, the animals, and it's, uh, you know, it's kind of figured out, eh, I don't want to mess with that. The gopher's doing this little cute chittering thing. And it's, I mean, it's the fakest-looking gopher ever, but it works. Yeah. And it's not even real gopher sounds. It's gone. Yeah, I know. It, yeah. And they use the same sounds as flipping. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I think they borrowed the soundtrack because it probably was, was it didn't cost a lot. This movie, again, this movie's made for $6 million bucks. It's That's pretty cheap with this big of a cast and all the stuff they're doing. They're, the gopher's running around. Danny goes to make the putt. And I and haven't played golf. I've played enough that I've actually had this happen to me where it just the ball just sits on the lip of the cup. And it looks like it's going to roll in, and it's just vibrating a little bit. And it looks like Danny and Ty and Al have lost. And the judge and the doctor are beginning to celebrate. And then all of a sudden, boom, Carl pushes that plunger down and starts – I mean, it's like Apocalypse Now has come to Caddyshack. We've got these huge explosions all over the golf course, and in the midst of it, of the confusion, the ground shakes and the ball falls in the cup. Lou declares Ty and Danny the winner, and the, of course, the whole world is there cheering, and they're walking off together. And Ty gives him this little tip of the cap, and he he walks off with Maggie at his side and his family and friends around him, and it's a big da 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 da, da kind of moment. You know, it's, it's where you want it to end. And the judge and the the doctor are sitting there in utter shock. And you get this great scene at the end where the judge goes up to uh, Dangerfield goes up to the judge and he wants his money, and and the the judge is like, no, 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 that's that's a freak of nature. And you know, Lou and Rocco come over to beat it out of the judge, and they chase him off the golf course, you know, oh, which yeah. is great. And, and then and then at the end, you know, you get the golfer pop up, uh, the gopher pop up out of the hole, and he kind of goes, <laughs> little smoke comes out, and then he starts grooving and dancing to the Kenny Loggins song. And that's that's the whole movie. I mean, it it ends on this big swing note because could it end any other way? Yeah, I think you knew the minute Danny accepted the challenge, they're going to win somehow, and he's going to have to make the shot. Brian, that's just about every golf, any movie that has golf in it, they've got to make that shot. And, um, and he, yeah, there's not a lot of surprises in this. Yeah. Maybe Carl. <laughs> And the gopher, but there's not a lot of surprises in this movie. There's nothing, you know, nothing in the plot that is going to shock you, but I guess it's not meant to be. It's comedy. So it's supposed to be funny, and it's everybody's supposed to be happy in the end. So this is the perfect way for it to end. It's one of those very fun films. Now, we should say when it opened, it made, it made like $3 million on its opening weekend, went on to make over 39 million in North America. It's made probably triple that on home video. It's it's had a whole other life on home video, but critics-wise, it was pretty well panned. I mean, you know, Ebert kind of said it was okay, but it was a little uneven. Some other people have said it said it's, it's a little uneven, and I'll tell you, 
that's sort of my my reaction to it too when I watch it now. It, I remember the first time I saw it, I thought it was really funny. The older I got, a lot of the juvenile humor in it really gets old. And I'll tell you, there's a lot of real dated humor in this movie. Like what? Well, I I think a lot of the the little in jokes are very much things from the seventies and eighties, and I I think also the idea of having a uh, someone clearly suffering from post traumatic stress disorder like Bill Murray is supposed to be doing played yeah. for laughs is not something we do today. It maybe it's the PC world we live in. weren't we all better off when you know that could happen? But uh, you know, I, I think some of that's a little dated too. But I still think it's a good watch. It, I, I just find this, and I, and maybe why I like it is because I absolutely love stupid movies you don't have to think <laughs> about. I just, I just, you know, I've got enough going on in my life. I just want to, I don't want to sit there and think about, I'm trying to think what's the last serious movie I saw. Um, oh, I saw, I did see The Hurt Locker. Um, you know, I don't want to, that's why I haven't gone to see Avatar plus, I've just disliked James Cameron ever since he made Titanic. <laughs> but, but, you know, I don't want to sit there and think and have to think. And I want to escape. And that's, to me, what stupid movies like this do. But you escape. You go, you know, in real life, I'd love to be on that golf course just flipping my magazine as loud as I can, making everybody mad. But, you know, people turn around and give me dirty looks, and then you can't go with them anymore and stuff. So, you know, so that's why I love this. You don't have to think. The humor, you kind of have to, sometimes you kind of catch it, sometimes you don't. Like you say, some stuff is probably dated. So I just love this movie, and it's so... It's so funny, and it's a coming-of-age story, and it has a message, do what you, you know, do what you want. And maybe why I like it is because when I saw it, first saw it, I was at that point in my life kind of like Danny, like, okay, well, I'm in college, what am I going to do yeah. now? What, you know, I, I remember going to college and my mom and dad telling me, well, we got you into college, now what are you going to do? So it was like, hey, I, I just got here, <laughs> let me, you know, let me decide, so... I think that might be why I have a special place for it. And like I said, I just like dumb humor. And this is dumb humor with Bill Murray and the ball cleaner and the old <laughs> ladies. And the, oh, we even forgot about the um, the Italian kid Tony oh, yeah. caddying for those old people in matching outfits, and they couldn't hit the ball more than like five or ten feet. Yeah. And and you know, it's just it's just <laughs> absolute stupid. Humor the gopher, you know, going around making dolphin sounds. It's just absolutely hilarious, and I just find it funny. You don't have to think about it. You can escape, and that's probably why I like it. I so think much. you're right, and I think there there's a lot of there are a lot of comedies, particularly adult comedies. And this is an R-rated film, so this is an adult comedy, and I know <laughs> a lot of teenagers probably saw it eventually, and we did. But it's an adult comedy. There's a lot of comedies that are that are stupid comedies that come off as being stupid. This is a film, I would I would call it a stupid comedy, but I would never call it stupid because I think it works. I think everybody here is incredibly shallow and easy to read, and that's what makes it fun. You don't have to engage all the brain. You just go with it and you, you have fun with it. It's a fun movie. Um, 
and, and it's a fun watch. How is it on a rewatch? You know, I'll tell you, if you've seen it a couple of three times, you've probably seen it. I don't think it's one you got to watch every year. I'll say that now as, as sort of my rating on it. This one's a, a an occasional play. I wouldn't call it a continuous play for me. It's an occasional play because it's good, it's funny. I think this movie's best watched with a group of friends while you're, you're playing cards or eating or just sitting around goofing off and you want something to laugh with and laugh at. It always works best in that group. So I'm going to give this one a, a, an occasional play as my rating. Well, I, I agree and I disagree because I think I only watch this occasionally, which may be why I find it so funny. Um, I'm trying to think of, oh, The Hangover I watch over and over and I think it's hilarious. But, um, yeah, I, I would give it an occasional play, but I, I think it's just classic. It's just, it's classic Chevy Chase. It's classic Rodney Dangerfield. Um, I heard in the commentary, um, Ted Knight was just, in real life, was a lot like his character in Mary Tyler Moore. He never wanted his hair messed up or yeah. anything. And, um, you know, it's, I don't know what role Bill Murray will be. It probably isn't this, but it's probably more Ghostbusters or Lost in Translation or even Groundhog Day. But, you know, it's, it's just such a classic movie, and it makes fun of such an old and sn- snobby institution. Just this old, stuffy, snobby institution that takes itself too seriously, and I think that's the charm of this movie. So I think it depends on who you are, whether you do it occasion- you watch it occasionally or it's a continuous no, watch. No, I, I can agree with that. I see what you're saying. It definitely... I, I'm not down on this film. I think it's good. I think it's fun. Uh, yeah, and, and yeah, I don't know what else to say about it. It's a good fun. Like I say, it's an occasional watch for me. Uh, sadly, um, I have to bring this up, but um, uh, it is one of Tiger Woods' favorite movies, <laughs> I read, which is why he did the um, American the Express commercial. Yeah, Express commercial with it. And what I thought was funny at the end of the very, he's doing all these. Bill Murray thinks, and Bill Murray says the same thing, gophers are a disgrace to the golfing industry, <laughs> and um, he, at the very end, you hear the Kenny Loggins song, Come On, and the gopher comes up and is dancing, and then you see a bag over his head, and the exterminator's like, that song gets them every time. <laughs> after, after Tiger was blown everything up and done the water and all that stuff Bill Murray did, so it is the the exterminator's like, this gets them every time. And he's like, oh, that was easy and hands on the American Express card. But, you know, it's just, it's just such a class, a classic movie. I think it's funny. I, I wonder if you take golf seriously, but obviously Tiger Woods does. Um, would you, do you like it as much as if you're just kind of an occasional, uh, occasional golfer or if you're like really think it's a stupid well, he, sport. He, he says it's his favorite, one of his favorite films. So I, I think guys that have, I think if you have a good sense of humor about it, and if you're a certain, in a certain age group, you do like this movie and sort of the fun that it pokes at the sport. If you're in a different age bracket, more like what Judge Smells is and stuff like that, you yeah. probably hate every minute of it because it makes fun of you. And I think you said it best, Anna. This is a, a funny comedy that pokes fun at a stodgy, uh, snobby sport among every other, uh, other institution it does. And it pokes fun at that idea that the nouveau riche aren't as classy as the old money. And, and as we see in the film, 
the nouveau riche aren't necessarily classy, but they do have some some moral compass to them, or at least they have some moral centrality to them, where they don't judge Danny for what he is and what he wants to be. They just let him be him, and I think that's how the movie works, and it's why it, it's one of those things that has lasted through the years. And I think it's like you call it. A lot of you call it, and a lot of people agree it's classic, and, and it's some of the best work some of these actors ever did i'd argue it's one of the it's one of the top two or three things chevy chase ever did and it was the start of what roddy dangerfield was able to do as a as a film actor bill murray's done some really interesting things but this was part of a swing when he was getting to be really popular and uh and it it shows in, in the performance ramus has has had a great career and this was the start of it so you can see he hasn't really changed much from the mold. You said it earlier. That kind of seems to be his calling card in these films. He he knows what he likes to do, and he just does it. He does. I agree. And um, I kind of on a miscellaneous note, I guess. Have you ever like really said the characters' names out loud, like like oh, they're ridiculous. All and Tom Webb. You know, it made, like, Lacey Underall got me most because it's like, you know, it's like you're saying Lacey Underwear. Yeah. And, and Ty Webb is like, he ties you in his web or something. Yeah. And I just, I just, uh, I just find that, I mean, and Dr. Beeper, because he had that, that old, I didn't even know they had beepers in the early 80s. Oh, that looked like a garage door opener, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Like my phone, iPhone is smaller than that. And then we also <laughs> forgot one of the, it included Carl too, kind of, but the scene with the bishop playing in the rain. Oh, yeah. We had, best yeah, of golf. yeah that, that's a classic one. Yeah, the best round of golf you ever had, and then he gets struck by lightning, and he becomes this stodgy <laughs> yeah. old drunk. I mean, he was already a drunk anyway, but he becomes this kind of angry and I agnostic. Think, <laughs> I think it's <laughs> Dr. Beeper. It's like, now, Bishop, you can't be acting that way. He's like, Oh, there's no God, and just like starts cussing and everything. So, yeah. And Bill Murray's caddy and for him, Carl's caddy and for him. And when he gets struck by lightning, he just leaves them out there in the rain on the ground. Is anybody watching me? Again, it's a, that's another, you know, this movie's poking fun at the old stodgy institutions. That's, that's what it's doing. And, and that was a little rib at the Catholic Church, I'm sure. So it, uh, I, just a good film all around. I mean, I don't know what else to say to say about it. You got any uh, last thoughts on Caddyshack? I just that it's classic. It's I, really classic, and I really enjoyed it. And every time I watch it, I enjoy it. And I just, I just think if you haven't seen it, you definitely need to see it once. I, I, I would agree. It is definitely you've got to see it at least once. And then, like I say, it's a good occasional revisit with an old funny friend. We thank you and hope you've enjoyed our uh, review of Caddyshack. Uh, check us out on continuousplaypodcast.com. You can download other episodes of our podcast there. Also, go on our forums. Every uh, review that we do gets its own thread. Leave us a message. And if you download us from iTunes, leave us a quick review. We'd appreciate your feedback. And I uh, hope you join us again next time because all the goodwill we've built up about Caddyshack, we're going we're gonna to roll the dice and see if it's still there eight years later when we take on Caddyshack 2. Until then, swing away. Thank you for joining Continuous Play's review of Caddyshack. Caddyshack is a copyright of Warner Brothers and descriptions of the plot, characters, or music in the film is strictly for entertainment purposes only and no infringement is intended. 
please follow us on our website, www.continuousplaypodcast.com, and leave us a comment there or on iTunes. Thank you.